morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Well, as we continue working our way through the Gospel of Luke, we move from one of the most well-known and beloved of Jesus' parables to one of the most obscure and confusing. I mean, a sermon on the parable of the prodigal son practically writes itself. The repentant rebel, the gracious father, and the bitter brother all have valuable and memorable lessons to teach us. We leave that passage likely feeling some combination of convicted, comforted, and challenged. But then we get to today's parable. And reading this one, the parable about the dishonest manager, may just leave us scratching our heads. In the end, this parable challenges us to use our worldly resources for heavenly purposes. But Jesus takes us on an interesting, winding path in order to reach that destination. So open up to Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't own one. But let's pray before we read. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Sunday. Thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship with your people. Thank you that we are not just doing this because it's something that we like to do or something that we're used to doing, but we are doing this with Christians across the country, Christians across the world, and we're doing this as just one more church among many in a long tradition of people gathering and worshiping your name on Sunday mornings. So thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ here. But thank you for our brothers and sisters in Christ in other places and even in other times. Thank you that we are part of this body, part of this family, part of this fellowship of believers that stretches so far beyond these people here or this building here on this corner. Thank you that we have so many brothers and sisters in Christ in so many times and so many places. Lord, I pray for them. I pray for us. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you today. I pray that your church would be your church in this world, that we would be strong and courageous to share the truth of Christ, that we would let our lives do the talking just as much as we let our words do the talking. And I pray that we would represent you well in this world. And part of that is attending to your word here on Sunday morning. So, Lord, help us attend to your word, help us learn, help us grow in our understanding of you, but also our love for you, so that we can serve you better and worship you more in the lives that you've given us. We love you. We thank you for your word, the opportunity to read it, study it, understand it. Lord, may your spirit help us understand your word today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's jump right into the parable. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus also said to the disciples. Now, before we go any further, let's just note really quickly that there has been an audience change from chapter 15 to chapter 16. Chapter 15 started in verses 1 and 2 with sinners and tax collectors as Jesus's primary audience. 
But we also had scribes and Pharisees. And most of Jesus' words in chapter 15 are addressed primarily to scribes and Pharisees. But then in chapter 16, verse 1, we see him shift his primary attention to his disciples. Now, the Pharisees are still there. You can see that in verse 14 if you look ahead. But it appears that Jesus is really focusing on his followers in the parables of chapter 16, including this one that we read today. So, again, verse 1, Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. So the manager in this story is an almost entirely distasteful figure. He's hired by this rich man to manage his property. And that's a position that most people would have given their arm to have. But instead of making the most of this golden opportunity, the manager wastes it. He squanders the rich man's possessions eventually gets found out and is informed that his services will no longer be needed. So naturally, the manager starts thinking about how he's going to pay the bills moving forward. He can't imagine doing manual labor. He can't stomach the thought of sinking to the level of begging. You can detect a bit of arrogance, a bit of entitlement in this manager. And it's only after he's fired. It's only when his back is against the wall that we see his one positive, useful quality. The dishonest manager is also shrewd. That shrewdness may be his only real virtue. Now, we don't often use the word shrewd. And when we do, it has a bit of a negative connotation. But the word shrewd here could also be translated like sensible, thoughtful, prudent, or even wise. So this manager may be a little bit lazy. He may be a bit irresponsible. And he may be a bit prideful. But one thing he's not is stupid. 
we see just how clever the manager can be with the cunning little plan he hatches to make sure that he lands on his feet. He's already been fired, but apparently he has just enough time left in his position to set himself up for the future. He's like a fired NFL coach who, for a brief period of time, still has access to the secret internal playbooks and can share them with other teams for their advantage and for his advantage, too. The dishonest manager calls up his clients, the ones to whom the rich man had given loans, and he does them some favors. He cuts down their debts. And keep in mind that he's using the rich man's resources to do this, not his own. He does it to build connections for when he's truly out of work. Again, he's buying himself favors. Now, it's worth noting that some commentators have attempted to rehabilitate the dishonest manager. They've tried to make him look like less of a scoundrel. Some suggest that when he lowered his client's debts, he was cutting out his own commission, thus not harming the rich man's accounts. Others suggest that he's actually doing the rich man a favor by making him appear more generous than he really is, and that could increase his profits in the long run. And while those are all admirable attempts to give this manager the benefit of the doubt, to try to make him look like not such a bad guy. The truth is that in context, this manager is just looking out for number one. There's a reason Jesus calls him dishonest or unrighteous in verse 8. So then, what will the rich man do? The manager's boss When he finds out about this, what would you do in that situation? The rich man does not give his manager his job back, as far as we can tell. The rich man doesn't say anything about the manager's integrity. The rich man also doesn't get angry. We read in verse 8 that he was impressed The rich man commends the dishonest manager for what we discussed a moment ago, his shrewdness. In the words of theologian Ron Burgundy, upon learning that his dog Baxter ate a whole wheel of cheese from the refrigerator, I'm not even mad. That's amazing. The rich man put the dishonest manager in a tough spot by firing him. But you have to give the manager credit. He shrewdly and craftily took those lemons and made lemonade. If the manager had been this sensible, this prudent, this wise, this shrewd all along, then he might still have a job. So, we said that this was a perplexing parable. Why is that? Well, one of the biggest reasons is that at first glance, Jesus appears to be commending a man who is almost entirely distasteful and dishonorable. 
That's a big reason why those commentators try to make the manager look better than he actually is. They're uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus might be holding this guy up as an example. Now, surely the takeaway for Christians from this parable cannot be go and strive to be exactly like that guy. Again, the man is dishonest. He's unrighteous. He is no role model for believers in Christ. So then, if we look closer, what should be our takeaway? It's important to notice that the rich man commended the manager's shrewdness, not his dishonesty. Jesus commended the manager's shrewdness, not his unrighteousness. Christians do not want to be exactly like the manager of Luke 16. However, we can still learn something from his example. And Jesus helps us understand what that something might be in the verses following. Picking back up, second half of verse 8. Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what in the world is Jesus teaching us from the parable of the dishonest manager? First, be shrewd. Be sensible. Be prudent. Be wise about how you use your resources for the sake of your future. Maybe one of the most challenging verses of this entire passage is verse 9. Especially that part that talks about people receiving you into eternal dwellings. Who is Jesus talking about there? Commentators suggest that he could be talking about angels welcoming you into heaven. He could be talking about people whom you've helped, who you will then see in heaven, welcoming you. Because they know the life you lived on earth. The truth is that we don't know. But again, the challenge can simply be, be shrewd. Take care of your resources now for the sake of your future. Forgive the debts of those around you. Be generous with the resources that your master has entrusted to your care. Because how you live now, the decisions we make, the priorities we pursue, the plans that we formulate today will have an impact 
on our futures. Unrighteous or worldly wealth will not last forever. He says in verse 9 that it will fail. On top of that, there is something worse than being homeless in this life. That's being homeless in eternity. So Jesus teaches us to use the resources God has given us now in a way that bodes well for our future in his kingdom. A second lesson that comes from verses 10 through 12 is that we must show ourselves to be faithful and obedient now in preparation for our future. Now, I know it feels odd to think about it this way, but Jesus is essentially asking, what makes you think that God would give you heavenly blessings if you squander worldly blessings? Why would God welcome the disciples into his eternal presence in the future if they take Jesus's presence for granted right now? Or think of it this way. If we live with a mindset that is completely, utterly and totally focused on this life and nothing else. Then why should we expect anything good beyond it? And a third lesson from verse 13. Worldly resources are to be managed, not worshipped. The word for unrighteous wealth in verse 11 is the word mammon. Some older Bible translations may have the word mammon right there. And while the Bible does not speak of worldly wealth and possessions as completely bad or completely evil all the time, that word mammon has a negative ring to it. That word stresses the dangers, the temptations of worldly riches, namely how they can redirect our attention and affection from the God who generously gives them to the riches themselves. Worldly wealth is kind of like fire. It can be used in positive ways. Cooking your food, keeping you warm, or fixing your copper pipes. But if you're not careful, that same fire can burn your house down. So in light of that reality, the ultimate shrewdness When it comes to our worldly resources, the ultimate wise, prudent, thoughtful plan for our wealth in this life is to make sure that we manage it in a way that does not endanger our eternal future. Steward it well, rather than giving it the worship that only the true God, Father, Son, and Spirit deserves. So once again, what is Jesus teaching us? Jesus uses the parable of the dishonest manager, a man whose example was mostly bad, to challenge us to think wisely about our future. We are to use worldly resources for heavenly purposes, rather than being used by them and risking our eternal life. 
Again, this may sound strange. It might even sound a bit too moralistic for our liking. But to be honest, it's not entirely new in the Gospel of Luke. After all, remember the mistake that the rich fool made back in chapter 12. He was so focused on securing his temporary security, his temporary comfort, his temporary joy, that he found himself woefully unprepared for eternity. He forgot that he would die. And when that day came, he was not ready. It's right after that parable that Jesus says, Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If eternal security, comfort, and joy are what we're after, the answer is not a life of shrewdness, wisdom, and prudence. The answer is Christ. But as people who have been reconciled to God, people submitted to Christ's lordship, people who are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit, our lives are to be characterized by shrewdness, wisdom, and prudence with our worldly resources for the sake of eternal life because we know that we have something better in Christ. So getting down to brass tacks, how do we practically apply the lesson of this parable? Well, most obviously, we practice sanctified shrewdness with our worldly wealth. We find basic, common-sense ways to use the resources God has given us for his glory. Be a member of a sound and godly church. And support it generously. Give to those in need around you. Fund causes outside of the church that are doing good kingdom work. And on top of those basic ways, look for creative ways to use your God-given resources for his glory. Maybe you don't have the traditional sense of possessions or wealth to contribute. But you do have time. Skills, knowledge, experience. Employ those unique resources for heavenly purposes. On top of that, be faithful now in preparation for your future. As we said during our communion meditation, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, Who he is, what he did, his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, and his promised return. If you believe those things, your future is secure. You are saved by grace through faith. You are a child of God. So then, by the power of the Spirit, live like it. 
Consider this life a kind of preparation for the next. One theologian writes, Christ wants us to seek after the heavenly eternal treasures with as much earnestness and diligence as we see that the children of the world seek after their temporal transitory treasures and lie in wait for them. We should seek after eternal treasures as industriously as the children of the world seek their worldly treasures. Be faithful now in preparation for the future that Christ has secured for you. And of course, we must manage our wealth and not worship it. You may have noticed that wealth and possessions are a consistent theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. That's one thing that sets it apart from Matthew, Mark, and John. So if you're uncomfortable with today's passage, I have bad news for you. These topics will be even more in view with next week's parable. And if you're tired of hearing about this stuff so much, and if I'm tired of preaching about it so much, maybe we should remember that God puts these things in his word for a reason. We need these warnings. We need these reminders. Wealth can be a wonderful gift of God's grace that we can use for his glory and much good. Or as sinners, we can allow wealth to use us to our eternal harm. May we be shrewd in how we use this fire so as not to get burned. We read it a few weeks back. We'll read it again this morning. The Apostle Paul captures this tension so well in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says in verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the negative. That's the threat. But then verse 17, just a few verses down. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's the positive That's the opportunity that these worldly resources offer us. May we walk that fine line with shrewdness and with wisdom. So if we look closer, the parable of the dishonest manager doesn't have to leave us scratching our heads. Rather, it can teach us a powerful lesson that we must use our worldly resources for heavenly purposes. And if we look even closer, the point of the parable is not to encourage us to be just like the dishonest manager. That would fly in the face of the example of Christ. Our salvation is secured by being like, is not secured by being like, 
man who used someone else's stuff to save his own skin. Our salvation is secured by trusting in a man who gave himself to save others. A life like that of the dishonest manager will not save us, and it is not good for us. But with all that said, we can learn something from him. The dishonest manager was shrewd in thinking about his future. He was clever in ensuring that he would land on his feet. He was wise in recognizing that there was something coming down the road, and his decisions in the present could help or harm his status there. In the same way, we have an eternal reward to look forward to in Christ. May we not squander the resources God has given us now and sabotage ourselves in eternity. May we use our resources now in a way that prepares us for our future in his presence. May we manage the gifts God has given us rather than allowing them to draw our hearts, our eyes, and our minds away from him. May we be faithful in the comparatively little that God has given us now, while looking forward with confidence to the glory that God will give us in eternity. Again, we have something better to look forward to. We use our worldly resources for those heavenly purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you for these portions of scripture that are perplexing, that are challenging, that get us out of our comfort zones, not just as hearers, but even me as a preacher. Thank you that you've given us these portions of your word to remind us, to challenge us, to call us out in ways that we might be falling short. Lord, thank you that our salvation is secured for us by Christ, that we do not save ourselves by making good decisions, performing good works, by saying or doing all the right things. We are saved by Christ and by Christ alone. But I also pray that we would see how a life of following Christ, a life indwelt by your spirit, ought to look different. We are called to obedience. We are called to faithfulness. Even that's not something that we do on our own. We do it with the help of your spirit, by the power of your spirit. But the demands that you put upon us in your word are very real. And Lord, help us grapple with that. Help us be wise. Help us be prudent. Help us be thoughtful. Help us be shrewd. And help us remember that we have blessings so far beyond what we see in this life. May we use our resources well, knowing that our ultimate reward isn't found here. Our ultimate reward is found in eternity with you. Help us keep that in mind day in and day out. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We ask this all in his name. Amen.